0: Yeah, Mark chapter 8, and really quick, before um, I begin the message, I don't know if you guys know, when we pass these out, we put on the back the upcoming events. Um, If you're a planner or a scheduler. (coughs) um, um, Now today, I didn't get to put up everything I wanted to, but I put up the two big things. So one, I want to draw your attention to, the Beach Retreat that is coming in June. We would um, love to have you. Um, if you are someone who's able to join them and come with us to Mexico, there's a, a price break for you guys coming to the Beach Retreat because we realize that, you know, you're saving permission trip at the same time. So um, I, I think uh, both are really important. Um, and I, I hope it's not like a... Well, I'll choose this one and not that one. Um, They both have different purposes. Um, So, uh, what what I'd like to say is um, if you'd like to go to the Mexico Mission trip, you still got a week or two before the applications are due. And if you're just one of those people where it's just hard to remember to bring in the application, um, that's fine. But if you just want to let me know, like, hey, I'm planning on coming, uh, I just got to get the application in, that'd be good for me to just be able to kind of start head counting. Um, and the beach retreat is, I think, the week after school gets out. But who knows the snow days and stuff, how that works. But I think we should be good. So, um, so yeah, these are good things to look at. I don't know if they're paper airplanes or not and all that good stuff. Um, hope you guys had a good week. Hope you had some time to sleep in and get caught up on some stuff. Maybe spend some time with the Lord pray. Um, We are going through our series of Mark, and so tonight we're going to get some time for small groups. And um, we're actually talking about a passage where um, I was asked to give a a sermon up in the main church, and the main body of the passage that I used is is Mark's version of the story. So I feel like this passage was a little... um, already on my heart, I guess, like something that I've already been thinking about. So um, I found it interesting going and studying it in Mark's perspective. So would you guys go ahead and look down with me? What, What I'll do is I'll read the passage of Mark and Mark chapter eight, starting in verse 27, and I'll read our passage and I'll pray and then we will talk about it. So Mark eight, verse 27, it says this, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ or the Messiah. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him, For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling to the crowd, to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will will save it. For what does the profit of man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you give us just a blessing as we... Um, Look to your words. Help us, Lord, to have a right view of you and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Spirit, we ask that by your ministry, that you would embolden the preacher, that you would um, help us to be a labor of love. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So my wife is someone who will tell you that she is not good at making decisions. Uh, I feel like every time I'm mindful of this situation in a car where we get in the car and we say, all right, we're going to go to eat. Where do you want to go? It just ends up with me deciding for us. Um, And I I just remember in Chicago, there's like a million places to go, and she wants to go out to eat. I'm like, okay, that's fine. We go to eat. Where do you want to go? Well, I don't care. You can choose. Okay, well, how about Pertills? Well, we always go there. Uh okay, well how about this place? Well, I'm not really liking this place. You want to do like Chili's? Like, no, we're in the city. Is there anywhere that you wanted to go? No, I just no you pick. I want you to pick. Okay. Uh do you want to go to this place? Only if you want to go to this place. It's like girl, killing me here. Um There's actually this meme one time, I don't know if you've seen the movie The Notebook there's this meme where, like, Ryan Gosling's looking at it, and he's like, what do you want? What do you want? And, like, above is saying, like, you know, taking my girl out to dinner, you know, like, what do you want? Oh, gosh, that was so accurate. But, um, and it's funny, too, because my wife will tell you, like, every single time we go to a restaurant and we have a server that asks for order, but, like, do you need more time? I just have learned, yes, we need more time. This girl needs to read the entire menu, every sentence, line by line, before she can make a decision. And it's like, I'm like, I want to get in and out, right? It's like, uh, I can be ready. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to get this, like, and just go. No, she needs, her, she needs her time. And it's funny because this week she sent me an article, my mental floss, of why people get stressed out making decisions. And she read it and felt it was very insightful for her. And, and the reason that the article is kind of saying is that, that people are afraid of missing out on a better option. When you're at a restaurant and there's a menu and you have the opportunity to order something, you're afraid that you've chosen the wrong thing. So you so you're kind of, you're panicking. You're like, oh, well, this sounds good and that, and maybe I'll get that. And, uh, and you don't want to be rushed because what if you pick the wrong meal? What if, what if you are looking at airline tickets and there's a cheaper flight? You know? And so there some people, I guess, I, I never really struggle with this. I just, I hate wasting time. So in and out, here we go. Um, they really struggle with making decisions. And, and, I, and I say that because when it comes to the Christian life and, and when I think about this passage, there is actually this decision that is implicitly being asked of us all. This decision of, of whether or not we will understand Jesus for who he is and follow him in the way in which he wants us to follow him. And I, I think if, if we're not careful... We, we kind of understand this decision to follow Jesus as like a, a one-time thing. Yeah, a long time ago, I decided that I was going to, to follow Jesus. And, and I think the problem with that is um, every single day when you are challenged and tempted with sin and whether or not to be faithful to Christ, you, in a way, are choosing um, I, it's funny, like Jonathan Edwards always said there's a difference between knowing something and believing something. He would he use this um, illustration that most people know that it's good to give money to the poor. I don't think anyone would debate that in this room. I think we all know that we should, that we should give up some of our resources to those who have less. We believe that, or do we? Because here's the thing, although we know that's a good thing, how many of us actually do it? And so there's a lot of things in which we can say we, we, we know and we believe this, but when we never actually do it. Jonathan Edwards says there's a distinction between we know something, we know it's a good thing to do this, but believing is actually living it out. And so um, we're reading here in Mark's Gospel, and I mentioned this last week, I don't remember, but last week's passage kind of ended the first book half of the Gospel of Mark. So the passage that we just read begins the whole new section of understanding this Jesus character. If you can remember a very long time ago when we started looking at the Gospel of Mark, the very beginning, verse 1, the good news of Jesus Christ, right? So it's all about this idea of, hey, we're talking about a message about this guy named Jesus, but what's interesting about everything we've studied so far is time and time again, no matter how many miracles Jesus does, no matter how many parables he gives, no matter how many storms or bread he gives to people, here seems to be the problem. No one really quite understands who he is. And so the entire first book of, uh, the first part of the book of Mark, do you know what he's doing? He's simply just trying to show us who Jesus is. He's, just trying to, he's giving us story after story, after parable, after miracle of showing us who Jesus is. And so today, we actually get a little confession. Um, in, the, in the Gospel of Mark, there are only two primary confessions of where we not just implicitly see who Jesus is, but we explicitly hear who Jesus is. We get one right here from Peter, and at the very end of the Gospel, the, one of the... Most unlikely characters also gives a confession of who Jesus is. And here's what I'd like us to do. Um, I would like us to, one, understand who Jesus is and what his mission is based off of this confession. And two, I think there are two callings placed on every follower of Jesus based on who Jesus is. Okay? Because here's what I'm trying to get at. Are understanding of who Jesus is will affect our discipleship. It'll affect how we live for Jesus. If we think that Jesus is just a nice guy who is there to help us when we have a blue day or to kind of give us a little pat on the back saying you can do it, our way of living for him and following him will kind of model what we see of Jesus. And so this confession of who Jesus is and who Jesus says about himself actually helps us understand what the nature of following Jesus should look like. It actually brings a lot of clarity. And what we'll see is that ultimately we are called with a decision to make. So, uh, like I said, three headings. One, who Jesus is. And the other two headings are the two callings on our lives. So go ahead and look down with me again. Uh, The first point, who Jesus is starting in verse 27, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Finally, right? Imagine for a second, it's hard to imagine this, but imagine you have never really heard about Jesus. You didn't grow up going to church. You were some person who wasn't very church-like, and and you're reading this gospel for the first time, and you're reading all these stories about a guy and he can what, he can raise little girls from the dead. And wait, wait, wait. And, and this guy he can actually be in the middle of a storm, and, and he can walk on water. Wait, and, and this guy he can speak in parables and make the Pharisees mad. And you're thinking to yourself, if you're reading this, who the heck is this guy? Right. Sometimes we have to remember, like, imagine someone reading this for the first time who didn't have all the context that we do, who didn't have the full story yet, and and they're reading all these miracles, all these things. And you're like, this is insane. What kind of person says and does this type of things? And so Jesus finally gives us this question. Hey, who do people say that I am? And so the disciples kind of say, like, well, the crowds, the people, they kind of say, like, you're you're John the Baptist. Some people say you're Elijah, and maybe you're one of the prophets. And so there's a lot of speculation, obviously. So even the crowds, they don't even quite know who Jesus is. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and he gives them the question for themselves. All right, if that's what people say, I'm, who do you say that I am? You guys have seen me in the boat. you see seen me take a little amount of food and turn it into a lot of food. You've seen me in close quarters with a dead girl and raising her. You've seen the story of the the woman who bled for 12 years, you, you, you've seen me cast out the Gentile demonic. You, you've seen so much. Who do you, after all this time of following me and seeing what I've done, who do you think I am? And for a moment's clarity, Peter, in maybe the brightest moment of his life, what does he say? That you are the Christ. You are the Christ. Now, here's the thing. Again, we're Christianized people. We're used to hear. we sing Jesus Christ, right? Like we hear that word Christ, but for them, this is what it meant. You're the Messiah. You're the king. You're God's anointed one. You're the one who's going to come in and rain down on Rome, and you're going to bring Israel back to the top. You, Jesus, you, you you're the one. You are the Christ. And as Matthew's gospel says, the son of the living God. We finally, we finally get a picture of who Jesus is. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about this. And so, matter of fact, Matthew's Gospel says that that this was such a good answer that Jesus says, Peter, based on your confession right here, this is what I will build my church on. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But, but here is what's really interesting. I think we all maybe know this story because it kind of, and once that, Jesus, can you imagine Jesus, the dude who's doing all these things? It's like, dude, you got it, man. You got it. Yes. You're finally getting it, man. Like, Peter, go, Peter. Guys, be more like Peter. But what happens? Verse 31. Jesus, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter, he hears all this nonsense about, wait, 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 wait bro. We just, we just kind of all confirm that you're the Messiah, that you're, you're, the, you're the Lord, you're the King, you're the, you're, you're, the, you're the Anointed One. But all this talk about like you dying and suffering under the religious leaders—that ain't Messiah talk. Like, you, you don't, know, Jesus, stop. Like, I don't know why you're getting this. Are you, are you just afraid of the religious leaders? So G- Peter starts rebuking Jesus and a dramatic turn of events what does Jesus say to Peter get behind me Satan get behind me Satan for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man what's happening here Jesus says you are right in knowing that I am the Christ but here's what you need to understand about the Messiah that I am a suffering messiah that i have come to not live but actually to die i have not come to overthrow rome but rather to let them overthrow me see one commentator says it like this says when jesus finally speaks of his messianic status it is not to claim the common understanding but rather to redefine it practically beyond recognition. Do you know what every Jew thought of the Messiah back then? They thought of someone who's finally going to make all things right. They thought they were going to lead this huge military (coughs) conquest. They thought the Messiah was going to be strong and brutal, and he's going to make Israel great again, and he's going to answer all of the questions. And then you hear this, you're going to do what? Wait, 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 wait! what? You're going to die? In essence, Jesus actually redefines who the Messiah is and his mission in a way that no one could ever even comprehend that the Messiah would be like that. Because he actually says that my mission is actually this, that I would suffer many things. Verse 31. And that listen, those were words that they could not comprehend. I had a friend in Bible college, and I love this. He's a good friend. So to this day, he calls me, he'll you know, ask me questions about youth ministry. But um, not that I have the answers, I tell him. But um, he didn't really grow up in a Christian home or, or, or reading the Bible much. And so he kind of gets saved later in high school and has a unique heart for the Lord and goes to Bible college. And in one of the classes, that we had to read the whole Old Testament in a semester. And I remember him walking out of his room visibly angry we're like Vega um what's up man like he's like you've got to be kidding me I was like what what's going on he's like Moses didn't make it into the promised land like yeah no like after all of that he didn't get into the promised land like he was like so upset he's like wait what after all of that, he didn't get to go, in. and he's just like, I give up, this is, no, I can't, do, like, he was, it was, it was really funny at the time, like, I just laughed, he's just like, I, I can't understand this, like, wait, what? Something that was beyond his recognition of understanding, which is, by the way, very sobering, when you see people read the Bible the first time, who didn't hear all the Sunday school stories growing up, they read the Bible, they're like, wait, what? Um... This is what Peter and the disciples think when they hear Jesus talking about suffering. It's like, no, 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 no. You, you don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. The, the Messiah that we're going to serve, he's going to be awesome and great and powerful. And a matter of fact, Jesus, can we be on your right and on your left? Jesus, you're going you're to take over the whole world. Jesus says, you don't understand who I am. Matter of fact, get behind me, Satan. Jesus wants us to be clear of who he is and what his mission is. Are you ready for it? Here it is, that he would be a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief, whose mission was to suffer many things in order to redeem humanity back to himself. Jesus' ministry and his mission was to suffer many things and to die. Now let me ask you a question. What do you therefore think it means to be a follower after someone who plainly tells you that my ministry and who am I as, as a person, is to be a life who suffers and who dies? So it's interesting, Jesus actually kind of giving a right understanding of who the Messiah is, of what does it actually mean to be the God-man, of what does it mean to have a mission of Jesus, to suffer many things, to die on a cross, to to be falsely betrayed. He begins then to show us what it looks like for someone to follow him. You know, I've heard story after story of someone who was broken down on the street, who was living a hard life, and, and someone comes up, and they evangelize to them, and they say, hey, do you want to have a good life? Do you want your life to get better? Trust in Jesus. Follow Jesus. And let me tell you something, like, in, in a way, that's true. I'm not saying that it's not, but in the way most people interpret those words, that probably a lot of times it isn't true. Because what we're asking to do is we're, we're telling people to give up your entire life and follow a person and reorient everything about you behind a person who suffered. And you know what? I think a lot of times Christians around the world, their physical, temporal lives get a whole lot worse after following Jesus. They get worse. You think people in persecuted countries where it is illegal To be a Christian, do you think, hey, your life's going to get so much better? No, it probably won't. And so Jesus here, he kind of begins to tell about after his resurrection and his death and stuff, he's like, listen, this is what you need to know about if you're going to follow me. And so here are the two calls on our life. Go ahead and look down at verse 34. And calling to the crowd... To him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him, three things, he says here deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So Jesus says, Okay, Peter, one, you don't even know what you're talking about. Get behind me. But here, this is what it means. This is the calling that you have when you follow Jesus. Are you ready for this, guys? If you are a Christian, this is the calling on your life. And if you're not a Christian, this is what Jesus is calling you into. He's inviting you into this. And here's what it is. A call to die to self-interest. A call to die to your own self-interest. Now, what's, what's hard about this point for a second is that it actually is kind of a paradox. Because here's the thing. Not all self-interest is bad. Self-preservation, in other words, saying this. So, in fact, Jesus, he appeals to your self-preservation by saying that you need to deny yourself. So, in essence, you could say it like this. Um, We must deny ourselves for our self-interest. Kind of interesting, right? Jesus gives us three commands. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. But can can I be clear with you? A lot of Christians have gotten this passage wrong. A lot of Christians. I read an article today on Gospel Coalition. This girl was talking about how she sacrificed self-care, sleeping well, exercise, eating, taking a Sabbath, resting, because she heard these words in her mind, you need to deny yourself. Now, let me tell you what Jesus does not mean here. He does not mean that you have to give up taking care of yourself. He's not saying that, hey, for you as a person, you need to deny that. No, no, no. Jesus made you. He loves you. You're unique. All of that stuff. He's not saying that, like, hey, you really like steak? You need to deny yourself now. Like, Christians, you can't have Coca-Cola anymore. You need to deny yourself. Like, that, that's, that's what we call asceticism. Where we think there's godliness and giving up certain like worldly things. Like some people think that sex is bad, and so they think, okay, if I do less sex, Jesus is gonna be happy. That's asceticism, and that is not a Christian biblical teaching. What Jesus is saying here, he's saying that I want you to give up anything that is at odds with following me. Anything that is at odds with following me. This denial of self is the denying of your self-interest. Um, again, like I, I shared this quote a few weeks ago when I preached on Luke 9, but um, John Calvin has this little book called um, uh, like A Handbook on the Christian Life, I think. Really small. But most of it's about this idea of self-denial. And he writes this. He says, Once self-denial has occupied your heart. It crowds out the evils of pride, arrogance, and pretentiousness, as well as greed, lust, gluttony, cowardice, and everything else that is born of self-love. On the other hand, where self-denial does not reign, the worst vices thrive shamelessly. What does it mean to be someone who follows after a suffering Messiah? What is the calling on your life as a high schooler, as someone who who says, I I will follow Jesus? What what does that mean? It means, one, that you will die to your self-interest, which means this, that you are committed to a life of dying to your own will, of dying to your goals, of dying to pleasures that do not honor Christ. It is a life that says, I am no longer my own, but I belong to Jesus. And Jesus, like, listen, guys, this is kind of a hard word. As a Christian, we are we are people who who can like boldly and proudly proclaim that I am not the master of my own soul. I do not choose what is right and wrong for me anymore. I I have a a Lord over my life who tells me what is good and what is bad. I seek to align myself with Him every single day of my life. And so, Tim Keller has this really tiny book. I think I gave it to you, Nicole, one time. The uh, freedom of self-forgetfulness. Isn't that interesting? Tim Keller writes this book, he says, there's a freedom in self-forgetfulness, and he says this in this book, he says, the essence of gospel humility, right, because there could be a false humility. Well, what does gospel humility really look like? It's not thinking more of myself, or thinking less of myself. So here's what humility isn't. It's not saying like, oh, I'm really awesome, look at me, I can do all these great things. And it's also not like, I'm just the worst. I'm no good at anything. Yeah, I got first place in this, but really, I'm the worst. Don't don't look at me. I'm no model. That's not humility. But what is humility? He goes on to say, it is thinking of myself less. Not that I I think that I'm the worst or the best, but I am literally not thinking about me when I'm in a conversation. I'm not thinking about how every little comment relates back to me. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself, not needing to connect things with myself. It is an end to thoughts such as, I'm in this room with these people. Does that make me look good? Do I want to be here? Have we asked those questions before? He goes on to say, he says, true gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself the freedom of self forgiveness the blessed rest that only self-forgiftfulness brings. See, I, I think about this, and, and here's, here's the danger, ready? Right? That all I'm doing is telling you, don't do this, don't do that. But let me ask you a question. What do we call the person who is patient, and who's kind? What do we call the friend of the person who doesn't envy the good things we have in life? What do we call the person who we know who isn't arrogant, who doesn't insist on their own ways? What do we call the person in our life who isn't rude, who doesn't have to make everything about themselves? We call that love. We call that love, and that's what Jesus is for us. Jesus, as our model and as our example, he came to earth, and you know what he did? He was patient and he was kind. He did not envy us. He did not insist on his own ways with us. He, he was not rude. So in, in fact, guys, listen, self-denial is love. Self-denial is Christ. Christ. And so the first thing you have to understand about following a suffering Messiah is that one, you need to die to self-interest. Two, it's this, that you need to choose. That You need to choose that you have a decision to make. In essence, this point that I was thinking about is it's the idea that you have some skin in the game. That you cannot look at the Christian faith, you cannot look at Jesus from a peripheral standpoint. You actually have to, at some point, decide, is it either Jesus in self-denial or is it not? There is no, I get to have Jesus on Sunday nights and kind of in church, then also I get to live my life over here. It, it, it is Jesus and I'm giving up everything to follow Jesus. It is not like I want to have Jesus in this small little compartment that sometimes I bring out when I have a hard day. No, it is Jesus in everything. You know, it's interesting. We Sometimes we sing this song that talks about overcoming. And I was reading this book this week by D.A. Carson, and he says this. It is only in suffering can a Christian learn what it means to be more than conquerors, an overcomer. It's so more than that. D.A. Carson, also in the same book about suffering, says this. He says, I look at my children and I wish for them enough opposition to make them strong, enough insults to make them choose, enough hard decisions to make them see that following Jesus brings with it a cost, a cost imminently worth it but still a cost. A church that is merely comfortable, that never evangelizes, never encourages its people to stand on the front line, will never be strong, never be grateful, never be able to sort out profoundly Christian priorities. Here's what I love about this quote. You ready? That in essence, if there isn't anything in your life that is forcing you to actually choose Jesus, you'll never have the opportunity to grow in what it means to follow him. Is there something that is costing you by following Jesus? Listen, I know it is tempting to look at what everyone in your high school is doing and how they're living. It would be tempting to treat sex as casual as most people do. It would be tempting To treat your future as just a a, a upward progress where I'm going to get what I'm going to get and I'm going to work hard to get it and I'm going to enjoy my life. It would be tempting to chase after all of the vain things everyone else does. But as a Christian, do you give up things? Do you suffer insults or awkward conversations or people looking at you strange because you follow Jesus? I, I, I love what D.A. Carson says here because, listen, we have a sense where we want to protect our children. I want to protect you guys. I don't want you to have to have a gun to your head and force to choose Jesus, but I want you to have enough to where you know that following Jesus does come with a cost. That I will choose in this day whether or not I will follow Christ. And so here's the thing every single one of you here, you have a decision to choose will I serve Christ or will I not? Will I live a life of suffering just like my Savior did? But if that is daunting to you, let me give you the promises that Jesus gives. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. He'll save your life. For whoever ashamed of my words... In this adulterous generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. For what is a profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Why should you follow Christ? Why should you see him clearly? Why should you know in your heart that if Jesus suffered, I should expect the same, that if they insulted him, they will insult me? Why should I willingly enter into this invitation? Because we know that when Christ comes, he won't be ashamed of us. And two, we know that we won't lose our souls. Three, we'll actually know that we have found something truly great. See, you have to know who Jesus really is. And who is he? He is the suffering Messiah who came and lived and ultimately died. And what does that mean for us? It means that there's a call for our own lives to die to self-interest and a call to choose every single day to be obedient to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these words. I pray, Father, that you give us um, wisdom and hearts that are open and honest during small groups. And Lord, we just pray that we would follow the image of Christ more and more each day. I pray all, this, all these things in his name. Amen. All right, well, you guys are dismissed for small groups, and I'll see you when I...